We're going to be completing our study of this great epistle, and we're looking at verses 23 through 28. This is Paul's benediction to this church that he loved so dearly. And as I was reflecting on what I was going to preach, and I was talking to Rich Long, he's uh, the chairman of our missions commission, and we were meeting at Starbucks and talking about missions and talking about a bunch of things about our church. And he said, what are you, what are you going to be preaching on on Sunday? Where are you headed? And I mentioned to him that I was going to talk about theology this morning, theology and how it's our life. And he brought up a quote from A.W. Tozer that was hot on his heart. And it was a quote I had heard a preacher preach about three years ago that struck me in a profound way. And I want to share this quote with you. This morning as we begin, A.W. Tozer, he wrote uh, several books, one, The Pursuit of God, and his most notable book, The Knowledge of the Holy. This quote is taken from The Knowledge of the Holy. It's the first line of the first page of the book. It says, what I believe about God is the most important thing about me. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at, at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is its idea of God. I think he's right. If you boil down what Tozer says here, it's that theology is life. Now, as soon as I mention the word theology, you can begin to wonder, hey, is Jeff going to give kind of an academic lesson this morning? Is he going to talk as if he's a Bible teacher in a Bible college or talk like a scholar this morning? And that's not my intent at all. I use the word theology because I want it to become something that's very accessible to you. And I want you to understand that theology really is far more, far broader than academics. It's our life. For instance, anytime you talk about Jesus, anytime you make a comment about Jesus, that's theology. You've just done it. Anytime you talk about the church, anytime you talk about your own soul, your heart, your desires, your future, your interaction with other believers, you've done it. You're guilty. You're theologizing. You're doing it. That, that is theology. Theology is a word that means the study of God. Theos means God in the original language, and that's where we get the word theology. It's what we think about him. It's what we think about other Christians, other people. It's how we relate to others. It's really all making up our entire life and what we think about and do. We're all theologians. Some good theologians, and sometimes we're bad theologians, right? But we're all theologians. Now, with that in mind, when you look at these verses, 23 through 28, this is Paul's benediction. And I think it could be easy for us just to read this section and kind of pass over it and say, well, thank you very much, Paul. He was just saying goodbye to the church and giving kind of a nice, kind, general blessing in a formal way to this church. But if you do that, you will miss 
a boatload of good theology. You'll miss Paul's point in what he's doing here. He is giving them strong tracks to run on as they finish hearing this letter read to them publicly. This letter, 1 Thessalonians, was read just like all epistles were read as kind of an open statement to the church, read aloud. It probably would not have been passed around. It was a very special letter from the Apostle Paul, and they would have heard this benediction, this final goodbye. But what they would have heard is not just goodbye, they would have heard theology, strong doctrine, strong teaching to equip this church to live their life. I want to ask you a question. How is theology shaping your life? How is Bible doctrine changing you? The teachings of God's word, how is it transforming you? From this text, I want to show you eight ways that theology is shaping your life, your world. Follow as I read, verses 23 through 28. Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Eight ways that theology is shaping your life. The first way, your theology is developing your view of God. Your view of God. Right here in verse 23, Paul is saying that God is the God of peace. The God of peace. That's how he describes God here. Irenaeus, which was an early church father around A.D. 175, he said, Without God, God cannot be known. In other words, we in and of ourselves cannot conceive of who God is. But because God has revealed himself in scripture with many different descriptions, defining and describing his character, God in Bible dress, we can know who God is. He's enabled it. He's given himself to us to be known. That's what he's done here. Paul calls him the God of peace. Whenever you describe God, that's called theology proper. And you have a couple categories in theology proper. One is the incommunicable attributes. Now you're sitting there going, ah, there he goes. He's he's lost me. No. Incommunicable. Let me just unpackage this word for a second. That means that God is God and we are not. Those are the God descriptions. Those are the characteristics that he is that we can't touch. We can't touch. For instance, God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He he can do anything. He's stronger than all of us and able to do anything he wants to do. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows every thought, word, deed, action, consideration that you've ever done, thought, or spoken. Everything. He knows the very hairs on your head. He knows when the sparrow hops. He knows everything everything. Okay. That's God's omniscience. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Okay. 
He's everywhere. There's no temple from the Old Testament that could contain him. He's beyond it. He transcends time and space. He's bigger than everything. He's outside of the universe. And yet he's also with us, intimately acquainted with all of our ways, never leaving us or forsaking us as believers. This is theology. God is immutable. That means God is unchangeable. He's never going to change. You want a God like this. You want the God who is the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever, right? God, we want him to be our rock, our resource, our refuge. Our world is on its head. It's upside down. We're going up and down like a roller coaster. But God is our rock, and he's unchanging. God is self-existent. He is what he called himself the I am. When he met Moses through the burning bush, he said, look, tell him I am sent you. That means God is self-existent. He's the one who was, who is, and is to come. He is. He's self-sustaining. He's self-existent. This is our God. We don't want a God who's any lesser than this because that being would not be God. God is God because of his incommunicable attributes. He is distant from us. He is wholly other from us in those ways. Now, on the other hand, God is made up of communicable attributes, ones that communicate to us because we can relate to them in a limited way. God is all-wise. You know, at times we have wisdom. Sometimes we're called a wise guy, but that's not what we're talking about. God is faithful. He always keeps his promises. He, he can't lie. He, he's always going to follow through. He's truthful. He's loving. He's good. He's righteous. He's compassionate. He's holy. He's just. In a limited way, we can all relate to these characteristics. My challenge for all of us is to remember God in the way that he's described in the Bible. In all of the ways that he's described in the Bible. He's never so loving that he's not just. He's never so good that he's not also exercising wrath and judgment at the same time. He's never so gracious that he's going to compromise. He's all of these things. He's, he's never so intimately acquainted with you to the expense of his transcendence and, and hugeness and vastness. He's all of these things. Now, why do I say this? I say this because I want to help you worship God. Theology helps you worship God. You know, if you're singing to God, or you believe yourself to be singing to God, but you're not thinking about God, as he's described in the Bible, then you're not worshiping. Kind of sounds simplistic, but if you're not thinking about God, the God of the Bible, and you're singing towards him, about him, then you're not really genuinely worshiping. Or, even worse, if we're kind of dumbing God down and not worshiping the God of the Bible in the full-orbed sense as he's described, then we could be guilty of the first and second commandments. The Bible forbids that we make other gods or, or, or worship other gods or form other images. And the image in your mind needs to be biblical for us to be doing what God wants us to do, to worship him in the way that he's supposed to be worshipped. For instance, a lot of people in the church today describe God in a lesser way, like he's our buddy or our chum or someone that we're just palling around with, that we can just kind of be totally informal with all the time. And that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God that we should fear and reverence. 
God is not a genie. A lot of people put God kind of in a sort of a genie in the bottle type thing where if you pray the right prayer in the right way, uh, the, the right amount of times, then God's going to bless you because that's how this works sort of axiomatically. It just, you know, you just pray this prayer and then it happens. And that's not the God of the Bible. Some people describe God as this heavy handed father who's, who's miffed at you and he's waiting to squash you. Some people describe God as the senile old man up in the attic who's wringing his hands wondering how to figure out the future. That's not God. God is the God of scripture. He is the God of peace here in verse 23. What is Paul getting at when he calls God the God of peace? Let me tell you. Paul was the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was from a Jewish descent and background, and so he would have greeted people by saying shalom. That's the Hebrew word for peace. And he's probably using that in the same spirit as he's saying goodbye to them. He wants them to be a church blessed by the God of peace. Only Christians know peace. That's God's peace. We were at enmity with God. We were at war with God before we were saved, right? It's as if we had our weapons aimed at God in hatred towards him. Even if we didn't know we were hating God, we were hating God before we were saved. Our hearts were hard. But God, through the cross, transformed your heart to the point where you laid your weapons down and opened your arms and said, Abba, Father. That's the peace that we know. We are reconciled to God, right? You are reconciled to the Prince of Peace. He is the God of peace to you. It's peace that we can relate with. It's communicable. it's, It's happened to us. And we also want to be peacemakers because of it. We want to be a church filled with peace. This was Paul's point in 1 Thessalonians 5.13. Just a few verses up, he said, Be at peace among yourselves. You know the Prince of Peace? Exercise peace in the flock. 2 Corinthians 13 is where Paul says, Finally, brothers, he's wrapping up 2 Corinthians here. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And listen, the God of love and peace will be with you. The God of love and peace will be with you. In other words, again, be at peace with each other. Why? Because you want God's blessing of peace in the church. We make peace with each other. Why? Because God has first made peace with us. Well, theology, it develops your view of God. It does. It informs the way you think of God. Secondly, your theology guides your prayer life. You know, you might say, my prayer life's kind of dry. It's it's drab. It's hard for me to pray. It's hard for me to get traction. Here's my advice. Learn more theology. Whether you learn it just from reading the text or reading books about the Bible or listening to theology online or Um, through a DVD or a CD or whatever, you need to learn more theology. Because the more that you know about God, and watch this, the more you know about what God wants for you and others, the more you'll be able to pray intelligently and boldly. You'll pray powerfully because you're, you're flying low to the text when you pray. Transforms the way you pray. And this benediction is a prayer, by the way. Paul is saying, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. What did Paul pray for? He prayed that the church would be holy. 
It's a tough prayer. It's a tough prayer to pray because when you're praying that people would be holy, you're praying for something that's invisible. Now you can see actions, but I'm saying Paul is praying that their hearts would be set apart from sin. That's what the word sanctify means, to be set apart. He's praying that this church would distance itself from sin. It's easier to pray for things in terms of ailments and sicknesses and jobs and people's futures and things that we can see and feel and touch. But to pray for holiness is more of a stretch. But remember, in this context, Paul has just laid out 14 commands that the church was supposed to follow. Remember? I mean, we went through that last week. All of the commands from verses 14 through verse 22. The last command, abstaining from every form of evil. Now, what Paul is saying is, look, you're probably not going to be able to obey all of those commands perfectly well all of the time. He knows the wickedness of our hearts. And so he's saying, oh God, make up the difference in this church's life. When they're falling down, sanctify them in spite of themselves. That's what he's saying. And that's how we can pray. We can pray like Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, his high priestly prayer of John 17. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How can you pray? Hey, oh God, please use the word of God in my loved one's life. Use the word of God in my life. Use the word of God in my friend's life. Uh, you know, I know they're, they're working through this Bible study or, or they're in this discipleship relationship. Penetrate their hearts. You might even want to pray during the service in that way. Sanctify this person in the truth. Set them apart from this particular sin. God's the one who has to do that work, and we know that to be the case. He is the sanctifier. He's the one who sets us apart from sin. Now, to use the, a word like sanctify or sanctification can, again, sound, you know, like elitism. And I don't mean to do that, okay? Uh, it, just, it just means to set a person apart. It's using theological shorthand. And, but when we understand what it means, what we're praying for, for somebody else, it means a great deal to us. We want to be sanctified. Have you ever been discouraged in your sanctification? Yes, right? We all have. And I read in a book one time about sanctification, and it clarified from this author's perspective what sanctification is, and that encouraged me. And then when I began to try to live it out um, in the way this author described it, it discouraged me. What, what he did is he had a, a picture, a graph that was a kind of sine wave that was going um, diagonally upward. And that was what represented sanctification. Like, okay, you're doing well and then you're not doing as well, but you're progressing along and you're getting more and more like Christ. Okay, sometimes I like the pictures in the book, right? Like we all do. But anyway, I read the words too. But all that to say, that, that graphic kind of discouraged me because I would be moving along in my Christian life and then all of a sudden I would sin in a way that I hadn't sinned in six months or a year and it's like man where am I on the sound wave I thought I was here locked in right you know I've kind of hit this new plateau and I'm locked in and now I've fallen down you know three levels it's like playing spiritual shoots and ladders I mean you know this is hard stuff you can get really cratered really quickly Well, I think that graphic works if you think about it only in terms of what God is doing in your life in spite of you. 
He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the perfection of our life, but it's the direction of our life that we're looking at there. 2 Corinthians 3.18, God is transforming us from one degree of glory to another. And watch this, verse 18 at the end. For this, this transformation comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He's the one who began the good work in you, and he's completing it. Romans 8, 28. The one who called us is the one who sanctifies us, will be the one who glorifies us. It's his unbreakable chain of salvation that's going to work. And that's encouraging. Unless you think about that also in terms of your own efforts, because then you grade yourself and you say, I was at a B plus, and all of a sudden I'm at a D minus, and I'm just bummed. What am I going to do? Where am I in this process? Well, I would say keep that graphic, that idea of the up and down for what God is doing, and then use a different graphic or a different word picture to understand our fight for personal holiness. I was helped by a preacher one time who described working out your salvation in fear and trembling like this. He said, working out your salvation in fear and trembling is like as if you're a salmon swimming upstream. Now, I'm not sure if he used a salmon in his illustration, but I am here, okay? I've been exposed to a few of them since coming to Alaska. It's the idea of swimming upstream. And he was saying, look, instead of looking at your, your Christian life in terms of, you know, this climb, look at it in terms of your effort. And when you're, when you're fighting against the stream, the current, against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and you're fighting then you can see progress in your Christian life. But as soon as you stop swimming and as soon as you stop fighting, you're going to be going backwards. Now what that does for me is it actually gives me some hope. Sanctification, first and foremost, is not up to us. God is going to do it in spite of us. But we can fight and we can perfect ourselves in holiness as we try to obey by the power of the Spirit. But when we check out, and when we, we stop fighting, then all of a sudden we find ourselves downstream. And we shouldn't be surprised. And it just takes out some of the surprise effect of what's going on in our world. Theology informs, of the, informs us of these things. We need to stay engaged. Well, theology, it develops our view of God. And secondly, it guides our prayer life, what we can pray for other people and ourselves. And thirdly, your theology informs you of what God is up to, of what God is up to. Theology tells us what God is like and what he's doing behind the scenes. John 4, 24 is where Jesus said to the woman at the well, listen, God is spirit or literally, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And she was trying to dialogue with Jesus about, look, we worship at this mountain or that mountain in this way or that way. And he's saying, look, worship is a matter of the heart. And what Jesus was doing is he was showing uh, the invisible realm of what really is going on. It's as if uh, the Bible opens up the shade, the window shade, and we're able to see the invisible realm. Look at verse 23. Paul's praying that the God of peace himself would sanctify this church completely. Do you know that God is working in you and bringing circumstances into your life, pressure on your life, and through those circumstances, he is bringing you to completion. 
to completion. James 1, 1 and 2 is where James said, Look, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith will produce endurance. And let endurance have its perfect work in you, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the same word, complete. Telos. It's the idea that pressure is applied on you so that the impurities and sin patterns of your life will rise to the surface. Kind of like a refiner's fire where where the dross rises to the surface so it can be skimmed away. That's the invisible realm of what's going on. The completion process that is at work in you even right now. So whatever you're struggling with and you can see and you can define as difficult in your life is also part of God's invisible hand working in you. For his purposes. Primary chief purpose is to make you more like Jesus Christ. All right. Number one, theology develops your view of God. It guides your prayer life. It informs you of what God is doing. And then fourthly, your theology tells you who you are. See, I know who I am, right? I, you know, I, I have a birth certificate. I, it's, I've got a driver's license. I, I can tell you who I am. Well, the Bible takes it one level deeper. The Bible says, yeah, you are who you are in your physicality, in your makeup. But you're also who you are in the inner man. There's the outer man and the inner man. That's the totality of who you are. And we find that in verse 23 again. The God of peace, he wants to sanctify this church. And he says, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is defining human beings in terms of their soul, in terms of their spirit, in terms of what the Bible calls the inner man, the inner man. Now, some people take a verse like this and they say, look, there's two parts to your inner man. There's the spirit and the soul dimension. And I'm not going to argue for or against that today. Um, There are a lot of theologians and writers who are called trichotomists, and they kind of break man up into body, soul, and spirit. That's fine. But what I'm pointing out is that in general, we are two parts, our physicality and our souls. 2 Corinthians 4.16 puts it this way. Paul says, so don't lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, right? Our physicality is affected by the fall. Our inner nature is being renewed day by day. And he goes on to depict it as a tent building is what we have on our outside. And then we have our inner man on the inside. 2 Corinthians 5, he says, For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. We're we're groaning in our physicality. We're longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And that's what he refers to to depict our outer and inner man. Jesus, he piles up a bunch of terms to talk about the inner man in Matthew 22. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So now you have three components going on in the inner man. Well, really, it's just different terms to express who we are on the inside, right? We, we're thinking, we're emotional people, we're affected, we, we love God with all of our soul and mind. And if you go and attach this to Deuteronomy 6, you have... We love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all of your strength. All of those terms are 
describing what is going on on the inside. And that's what theology does. It, it shows us who we really are. It teaches us about ourselves. It's important stuff. It's important to know ourselves in the way that God knows us. And the end of verse 23 is saying that both our inner man and our outer man, our body, are going to be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you understand the theology of the inner man and the outer man, then you can get a firmer grasp on what God's going to do for you. You know, there's a lot of sin stuff that's going on inside, right? Remember Romans chapter 7 where Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? And then he alludes to, um, thanks be to God who's going to ultimately deliver him. He talked about the things I I don't want to do, I do, and the things I I do, I don't want to do. That's the inner man. He's saying, look, I've got a body of death and I've got this thing that's going on, this desire package that's kind of all messed up by my sin. Well, getting a firmer grasp on that dynamic gives us deep gratitude because you know what? Your outer man and your inner man are going to be delivered one day when Jesus comes back. That's how theology informs our prayer life. It informs how grateful we should be for these things. It informs us of how we can pray for people, how we can observe somebody, even as their outer man is decaying. Maybe someone that's in the hospital or has a disease, you understand that's the outer man. But as the outer man is going down, the inner man is being renewed in a significant way. That's what doctrine does for you. That's what the Bible teaches. And I'm urging you to learn truth in this way. Learning theology, I just want to digress for a second. It changed my life. I went to Bible college. I went to seminary. And then I went to an associate pastorate for 11 years. And during those 11 years, that's really when I crystallized my theology. Had been a Christian, had been raised in a Christian home. But really, when I made a concerted effort to read and study and think and write and teach and dialogue, and talk to people about theology, that's when it really crystallized and clicked for me. You say, I don't have time to do that. Well, I'm going to, at the end of our time and our take-home point session, I will give you some practical tips on how to bring this to your life. These categories, these ways of thinking about God and life are transformational. All right, theology, it develops your view of God, it guides your prayer life, it informs you of what God is doing and tells you who you are. Then fifthly, your theology guarantees your future. Look at verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. I love the the boldness here. He will surely do it. Our hope that we are going to ultimately be sanctified rests on God's character. Paul is putting God's character on the line with these statements. He will surely do it. He's the one who calls you and he's faithful and he will do it. He will bring this to pass in your life. Look at the the word calls in verse 24. He who calls you. That word calls is not talking about the general call for salvation. Jesus did generally call for all believers to come and be saved. Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? He's calling for the world to be saved. Jeremiah called by a, as a prophet. God was calling through Jeremiah for the world to be saved. He, he wept for the world 
on God's behalf. Jesus wept for Jerusalem, wishing that they would come. But this particular calling is what's called the effectual call. Now, there I go again with another theology lesson, right? All right, the effectual call. That is talking about God's effective work in your heart when he saves you. The idea of calling here is more like the idea of reaching out, grabbing, and drawing you. It's going, to, it's going to happen. It's like being the spaceship in the tractor beam. You're going to be sucked into the Death Star, right? All right? It, that's how I did it in seminary. I had to do those things, you know, to, to remember. Anyway, but it's, it's calling and it's drawing. He who calls you or he who saves you, he's faithful. He started this work, he transformed your life, and he's going to follow through. Why? Because God is a God who is faithful. He, he's Numbers twenty three nineteen. God's not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not fulfill it? He's going to fulfill his promises. And again, the more of this theology that you take to heart, the bolder you'll be in your Christian walk and life and prayer life. Theology develops your view of God, it guides your prayer life, it informs you of what God is doing, it tells you who you are, it guarantees your future. And six, it connects you to other people, verses 25 and 26. Now, in terms of an outline, this is my weakest outline point, but in terms of something hitting my heart and what I think is important and exciting, this is one of my favorite points of the morning. Verses 25 and 26. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Have you ever been friends with somebody before you were a Christian and then you both become Christians? And have you ever watched that friendship take off in ways that you never thought possible? Theology, when, when theology is the ground or the basis for a relationship... It's a relationship that should be on fire and exciting and powerful and meaningful. You can be friends with people that you would never be friends with otherwise because of theology, because of the gospel. The gospel is the greatest ground for being a friend to somebody else. That's why Paul is saying, look, pray for us. Think about me. Care about me. I'm in Corinth, but care about me. Why? Because I'm your brother. And when you're theological, you think that way about people. He says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, modern American translation of that, hugs all around is what he's saying. Hug each other. Enjoy each other. I've never really been greeted with a holy kiss. Don't really want to, but I do understand the affection and the emotion behind this statement. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. In other words... When you become a Christian and you have a, a relationship that's based on theology, you can look at a brother in Christ and say, I love you in the Lord. And that is powerful. And that is something that Christians enjoy and share with each other. Sister to sister, brother to brother, treating sisters in all purity in the Lord in that way. relationship. I was at a house just on Friday night with a couple couples and um, one guy in particular who I knew from my time at the Master's College. He, he doesn't attend here, but 
um, we all kind of know each other, and he was telling us stories. And these are stories that I can enjoy, but I don't necessarily, necessarily relate to, at least as of yet. And I don't know that I ever will, at least at this level. He was talking about bear hunting and how he, his greatest desire is to go to Kodiak and kill you know, the largest um, bear, except for a polar bear, on the face of the earth, right? And he, you know, he's going into this. And it led him to another story on a bear hunt where he was talking about bullets that he was using that were the size of my hand and using a gun that's basically the strongest or second strongest gun that you really shoot to try to put this bear down. And so it's kind of dusk, and he's got a buddy with him, and he's shooting the bear in the heart. And the bear is dropping 30 feet in front of him and then getting back up. Kind of like a heavyweight fighter, right, that won't quit. Just boom, and then down, and then up. And then about the seventh round, it's still on fight after him. And and I'm just going, man, I just can't totally relate to that because I would want to use a gun that would just kind of kill it, you know, or kill it about the third shot. And, and he's like, you know, he's saying this is a big burly guy. I mean, very strong and, and uh, just, but a gentle spirit at the same time. But he was just saying, listen, you know, you wouldn't want to shoot the head because the head's part of the trophy. And so you're just, you're just, you know, lacing the thing. And then, and then he gathers his buddy because they're out of ammo. Like the thing is still alive and angry, and they have to go back and get more bullets. And so they get more bullets and come back, and they're coming back in the dark, right, to finish off the I'm going, I just can't, I can't get there. You know, I love you. I can't, can't really want to be there in that moment with you. Why do you want to do that? He says, it's, it's the thrill of being the hunter. I went, all right, well, fair enough. Thank you for that. He also shared this story about flying his, his Cessna and how he's, he's crashed it a couple times, but that's okay, you know, and, 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 and he, he, he laid it down into a mud flat, and in takeoff, he, he kind of got stuck and had to leave it there, and then the tide was coming in. So the tide came in and kind of overtook the plane, but you call in for the helicopter to, to lift it off, and, and hopefully you can take it apart, dry it out, and repair it. And so as it was strapped on, he, uh, he noted that it was really bogged down into the mire and it wouldn't lift off. And so he had to go into the plane with his ratchet set and he's ratcheting out the seats and other parts of the plane as the tide's coming in up to his chin. Again, I can't relate, you know. I just, I just would probably watch it go. I would take the ratchet set and just knock it over my head at that point and finish myself off. But can I relate to this guy? I can. And you know what? We'll probably get together and talk about stories, but we'll talk about God first and foremost. He'll be an encouragement to my soul. Why? Because we both love the same Lord and we we study the same Bible and we can know the same God together. Theology is a way to relate to people and it is the way to connect with people. All right. It develops... Again, your view of God, it guides your prayer life, it informs what God is doing, it tells you who you are, it guarantees your future, it connects you to other people. And number seven, your theology produces humility towards Scripture. Look at verse 27. Paul says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. This would have been the only letter of its kind, handwritten by Paul, coming as a word from God from an apostle, inspired scripture. And Paul knew this. He understood the theology of God's word. 
He knew what was coming from his hand. He knew that this church needed to hear the word from God. And I think he was concerned that, they, that since he had people who did not like him already at the church, he probably had enemies, people who were talking bad about Paul, wanting to take over and move Paul out. He was concerned that the church be committed to reading this letter. In other words, when the person would receive the letter, instead of looking at the front of the letter, they would look at the back of the letter and see who it was from. And they would see that it was from, they would see that it was from Paul in the beginning. And then they would read the end and they would see this benediction and understand that it was a serious commitment to have this letter read. Letters would not have been passed around. These letters were special and epistles. And so this letter would have been read from a spokesperson allowed for them to listen to and feed from. And he was calling for them to be humble enough to commit to having this letter read. It was a commitment. Now, this kind of commitment could sound weird if you don't understand what the letter was, right? If you understand that the letter was scripture, that it was inspired, weighty, something that would transform the church's life, then as a Christian, you are wanting to commit yourself to hearing the word of God, right? We love our Bibles. We love the truth. And we treat the Bible as a special book, a special word above all other books, above all other words. And so we understand a commitment like this. We are humble towards Scripture. Verse 28, your theology grounds you in the gospel, in the gospel. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. How does Paul end this letter? He ends it. By saying, grace to you. All of our lives are based on grace. We did nothing for ourselves to save ourselves. We were saved by grace, the unmerited favor of God. God's smiling blessing on us when we were yet enemies against him. He saved us. He grows us by grace. And he keeps us by grace. And he will ultimately bring us to heaven by grace. And that's where he's leaving things. He's ending with the gospel, which again is the doctrine of salvation theology. All right, a couple take-home points. Number one, read good theology. Even if you're not a reader, find something, some way to get theology into your mind and into your heart. Listen to good theology Go online and listen to good theologians teach, good pastors teach, or read theology at all levels, practical theology or high theology. Theology is life, but just because theology is everything that we're always talking about and thinking about, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't formally study theology. I would recommend it. Now, it takes me, you know, I'm taking great pains to give this quote that I'm about to give. I'm sorry, you know, for what I'm about to say. I really am. But it's an NFL coach from Dallas, Texas that I want to quote. From the Dallas Cowboys. And uh, his, name, his name is Tom Landry. And he has gone on to be with the Lord. He's a man um, whom I respect as uh, a believer. And um, he said this. He said this to his team before training camp. He said, I want to make you do what you never would want to do to become what you always wanted to be. I think it's a good, good mindset to push, to push yourself, 
to read systematic theologies like what Wayne Grudem has put together in his systematic theology, or Jerry Bridges, who's a very practical theologian. He's got all kinds of books that are very accessible. John Piper, Don Carson, J.I. Packer, Leon Morris, Alistair McGrath. Or you can read the dead guys, too. You should read dead theologians. You really should. You should get excited about that. Jonathan Edwards, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, great theologians. John Owen, Martin Luther, John Calvin. Read them. Don't be intimidated by these guys. I used to be until I had to read them because I would be given them in course curricula. And then when I would read them, I would say, oh, this is just a pastor. Or, oh, this is his heart. Or he's describing the Christian life just like, you know, I I understand the Christian life. J.C. Ryle, another great Puritan author. These are great men. And I can give you, you know, a reading list or give you suggestions tailor-made for your needs if you want to know what to read. Next, attend conferences, seminars, and Bible studies on theology. You say, how can I get involved in some theological teaching? Well, be a part of the women's ministry. You know, anytime you're studying the Bible, you're studying theology. Uh, You know, the men's ministry, 3D, Sunday school, first hour, there's a couple classes. Get plugged in, learn theology, and learn it in the context of relationships so that you can not only learn it, but you can talk your way clear with other people and live it out. And that's, that kind of goes right into my next two points. Listen to theology, not just the practical stuff when you have a, a list online for you to choose which theological sermon you're going to listen to. Don't just go to the one on parenting. I understand that that's great to do, but, but you know, sometimes wrestle with something that's a little bit more out there, something that's a little bit more deep or, or you know, less practical, because when you get your mind around something that's new and there are breakthroughs, that also can bring in the flood of devotion to God because you've learned more about who he is and then talk to people about theology. The more that you talk your way clear, the more theology will sink in and the greater opportunity you'll have to have incredibly lifelong, incredible lifelong friendships centered on God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time. We thank you for this truth. We thank you for this letter written by the Apostle Paul, your servant. We thank you, God, that this church was a model church that loved you. They lived out the Christian life in faith, hope, and love. And they were persecuted, but they were a persevering church. And I pray, God, that we would be a church built on these principles of authenticity, that we would be obedient, a servant-hearted church, a church pursuing peace, a church that would be an example in Anchorage and in the world, not for our own fame or glory, but because you want it that way. You want us to be sanctified. You want us to be holy. And I pray, God, that we would realize the end of this prayer, our holiness and blamelessness as we stand before you in joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together as we dismiss. I just want to encourage you to encourage each other in the Lord and seek each other out and maybe even take this week, uh, this day or this week to pursue someone and say, hey, let's get together and let's, let's talk about life or let's talk about God. And uh, I just would encourage that kind of fellowship because it's meaningful and it will change your life. 
If you don't yet know God, if you still need to know Christ, we want to pray with you. There will be men and women up front to pray with you and receive you. If you want to just greet us and the Lord or say hello, come on by and we will pray with you and talk with you and share in Christ together. Go in grace and peace today and be salt and light in your world and community. Dismissed.